Hey guys, quick programming note this week. We recorded this interview in a new space with some new equipment, and as a result, the audio isn't quite the best for the first half of the show. But please bear with us, it does get better. So sit back and relax. You're not going to want to miss this truly fascinating conversation with Reuters reporter Ginger Gibson. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Average Feminist. We may not be your average feminist today, but tomorrow we will be. I'm Amanda. I'm Christina. And I'm Sarah. Well, boy, oh boy, do we have a good one for you guys today. We are joined by Ginger Gibson. She is the national political correspondent for Reuters and one of my very best friends in the world. So, oh my gosh. Okay, so I just want to, let's just kick it off. Ginger, thank you for coming. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, well, tell us, well, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. Yeah. I I guess I'll start at the very, very beginning. Please do. originally from Port Arthur, Texas, Uh, moved around as a kid, ended up uh, by accident, a political journalist, and um, that's what I do now. Wait, why was it by accident? Um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was really convinced wow. I was going to go to law school. I had a judge tell me when I was in high school that if I wanted to go to law school to write as much as I possibly could <laughs> as an undergrad, as a sort of preparation, and I went to LSU and um, ended up, uh, the student newspaper paid $15 an article. And I thought, that'll be great. It'll be lots of practice writing, and I'll make beer money. Um, And so the second semester of my freshman year, I applied to work there um, at what I thought was just sort of a a fun side gig Mm -hmm. in undergrad, and it ended up becoming my career. Wow. That is awesome. So um, how did you get your first job out of college, and where was it? So my first job out of college was at the News Journal in Wilmington, Delaware. I had interned there um, the summer after my sophomore year. Um, I was actually, uh, in January of 2008, standing in the West Des Moines High School cafeteria covering the 2008 caucuses, and my phone rang uh, about 20 minutes before the caucus was set to start. It was the editor of the uh, Wilmington News Journal calling to offer me their uh, lead government reporter job, where I would cover the governor uh, and the Senate and politics in the state. And I, of course, accepted and then said, um, it's five degrees out here. I don't have my coat, and I'm about to miss the Iowa caucus, so I need to go back wow. inside. Um, but that was that was how I got my first job. Wow. So it took you to Wilmington, Delaware. It did. It wow. took me to Wilmington and Dover. Uh, where I covered the legislature in the governor's office. Um, okay, so you're a fresh college grad at this point. You're, what, 21, 22, 22 23? Yeah. So how did you, like, learn the ropes? What was it like, like, diving in? 22, I mean, and the economy was crashing. Yeah. So it was 2008. Um, I, you know, I think Were you it, super stressed out? Oh, my goodness. I, I packed up my little Pontiac Grand Am. I drove across <laughs> country. Um, I, I tell people that, you know, when the markets really went under, 
um, I started keeping $40 in cash in my glove compartment and I would never let my car get below half full because yeah. I was afraid the economy was going to get so bad oh my gosh. Um, that I was going to have no job and no apartment and I was going to have to drive back to my dad's house. And you wanted Louisiana. to make sure that you could actually make it. I wanted to make sure I could make it. So, wow. um, which is like in retrospect, I'm like, wow, that was a, that was a formative experience, right? Yeah. Um, I think I learned by trial, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's how journalism works. Um, uh, I think the worst journalists out there never get any better than the day they start. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the best journalists out there are the best they've been, uh, and the story they published was the best story they've ever done. The last one that they just yeah. published. Yeah, I mean, I just think you have to learn as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, it is definitely a cumulative activity. Um, and if you plateau, then, then that's it. So I, and I think that's how I started as mm-hmm. well. Do you think it helped that you started in a smaller market, like didn't go straight to D.C., New York, whatever? Absolutely. I think that the sort of the worst thing that's happening to journalism is that our local papers are suffering and it's much harder to be a local journalist um, and sort of come up through the leagues, as we used to say, start in the minors and work your way into the majors. But it was the most important thing I did. I covered a house and a Senate where I could walk onto the floor, where I could wave a member over uh, to come answer a question. And uh, the second governor that I covered, who was elected right after I got there, um, would stand in his doorway uh, in the Capitol uh, during busy days, mm-hmm. and I knew that if I if I walked up at the right time, I could find him standing there in the doorway in the hallway, and ask him a question. Uh, you know, that's a that's, that's a good cool. way to learn how to cover politics. Uh, with that. And um, speaking of Delaware, you have some really great stories from your time in Delaware, and I know I will not make you go into all of the details. So yeah, you got yeah, your I you got your first really big national story. Ooh, do tell. You know, I always thought that I wanted to cover legislative bodies, that I wanted to cover legislatures, and then I'd come to DC and cover Congress. And I still tell people that if I died a congressional reporter, I'd be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got into elections. I mean, elections are an integral part of this. Um, and my first big election was in 2010, um, when a, uh, rogue candidate named Christine O'Donnell, uh, won the Ooh. Senate primary. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to take away here about reporting, about careers. Um, I was at that point, 24, I was young. Um, I was covering the legislature in the governor's office, a lot of times your big marquee races are going to be covered by the senior reporters that don't necessarily cover government day to day. Joe Biden had become the vice president. His seat was open. There was a special election for his seat. Mike Castle, the Republican congressman, was running and everyone was certain he was going to win. Um, and none of the senior reporters wanted to cover the race uh, because they said it was going to be too boring. Um, they had just hired uh, a male reporter to come in and cover the county. The county executive was running. Uh, They thought there's no way on earth this Democratic county executive is going to beat Mike Castle. Um, And so they told the county reporter that he could cover the race. That would give him exposure when the county executive had to go back to being the county executive after running. And I was like, but I want it. I've been here longer. I know the state. I would like to cover it. Um, I got a tip about a story. I did a lot of legwork and ended up writing about how Christine O'Donnell was a big financial mess. She hadn't paid her bills. Uh, She had been kicked out of her house. She was living off of her campaign funds, as she told me herself. Um, And so the editor said, well, I guess since you covered O'Donnell, you can cover the Republican primary. Um, And then the rest was history. I mean, she became a national sensation. 
Wait, I so had, you broke that story. I had written the one definitive story wow. on how she hadn't paid any of her bills. Everyone from the Wall Street Journal to the AP had to source my story uh, once she became uh, a national phenomenon. And the editors couldn't tell me no at that point. Yeah. And they let me cover the rest of the race. I actually got offered another job in the middle of that race. Told a new job, I can't leave until this one's over. Um, gave mm-hmm. two weeks' notice. Gave, actually, I ended up giving a month's notice, covered the last month of that race, uh, and then moved to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I over. think the first time I noticed at least your byline was when you were in New Jersey. I went to New Jersey. Because you covered Chris Christie. I covered Chris Christie from yeah, Star not Ledger. Not to jump too far ahead of things, <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. Yeah, went to cover Chris Christie for the Star Ledger. Um, I was actually only there a year, uh, a lot less time than I thought I would be. I got to crisscrossed the state. I went to every county while I was there. Um, and, and again, I always thought I was going to be a legislative mm-hmm. reporter. And I thought, oh, for a year, a couple of years, I'll go cover the executive. This will Do give some me races. Just no big deal. Cover, you know, just cover a race. I'll go cover an executive. I'll be really well-rounded when I started applying for those jobs to cover Congress, mm-hmm. which was sort of the ultimate goal. Um, I did ultimately cover Congress at one point, but that has been uh, not the totality of my career. Yeah. So, And I should say, so Christina is from New Jersey. I am. So, wait, where did you live when you were in New Jersey? We always have it, to go over this. In Central Jersey, which is a real place. It is I, a real I place. went to Rutgers, which is in Central Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I lived outside Princeton. Okay. Plainsboro. So. Excellent. So, when did you leave Jersey? In 2006. Okay, so I there think. wasn't really any overlap. No. Bummer. Oh, well. I was out of there before Christie was governor. governor. Anyway, so you covered Christie for a year, right? Was that he would like the governor's mansion? That was your beat, kind of. Yeah, you were I there? was. Uh, I was responsible, and that was a, a much more politics-heavy job. I mean, mm-hmm. Christie. I thought that was interesting. Christie was weighing a run for president. He ultimately did not make uh-huh. that year. Um, I went there in 2010. I was there through 2011. Ultimately, he decided not to run for president in the 2012 election. Um, Hindsight, big mistake, right? Do you think? I absolutely think that, you know, if you look back at, at the political calculation there, he thought, now, my understanding then, and, and I still think today it's true, he thought that he couldn't win the general, that Obama couldn't be beaten. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really see an, a, a reason for him to go out and try to be the nominee just to lose in the general election. Um I suspect he was probably right. I don't know that he could have done any better against Obama than Mitt Romney did. Mm -hmm. I do think that he probably could have done better against Mitt Romney than anyone else did in the primary. And he Mm -hmm. could have been the nominee. And at least maybe his career would be in a different path. Or would be in a different place right now. I mean, there's a lot of questions about ifs. I mean, would he have been reelected had he gone out and lost the general? I don't know the answer to that. You never really know. No. So, um... I, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows what could what could have been? I mean, anyway. So you were in New Jersey for a little bit, and you got snatched away by Politico. That's right. I went to Politico in November of 2011 to cover the 2012 race. So tell me about that. So you're in Jersey. You're you've you've been covering like state politics for a long time, um, with national implications. But you've been a state based reporter. So was there a calculus in your head where you're like, I need national. Experience like I really want to go to DC. Was that a goal or not really? It was a goal eventually to go to DC. I got an email um, from an editor at Politico that said, "We noticed you. We'd like you to come interview for a job to cover Congress." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I've always wanted to cover Congress. Uh, 
never turn down a meeting. That's a rule in life, right? I always take a meeting. Mm-hmm. I actually told my boss I was going down to meet with him because I never conceived that I would actually take the job. I was like, I'm not going to work there. <laughs> this is just, you know, I'll just in all truthfulness. And I don't know that I would recommend telling your boss every time you're going to be for a job. <laughs> but 24, 5, 6-year-old me uh, thought it was a good idea, and so I did. So I came down to D.C., and I got here, and they, the night before I got an email that said, while you're here... Uh, we also have some campaign reporting jobs available. Mm-hmm. Would you would you be interested in interviewing for both? I said, sure. Um, again, never turned down a meeting. Um, and I went to lunch with a national politics editor who is still, has returned to Politico after leaving Charlie Matessian. And I said, that man is brilliant. I said, he is smart. He knows politics better than almost anyone I've ever encountered. And I want to work for him. And so when they called and offered me the job, I said, I will work for Charlie. Um, now, second lesson, uh, never take a job to work for a single person because Charlie was no longer my boss about two months later. <laughs> so there's, there's that. Um, but I went to work for him. I thought he was just um, really smart and that it was an opportunity I needed to take. So I thought, no way I work for Politico, no way I leave New Jersey this quickly. Yeah. Um, I'd only been there a year. I do think it's bad advice when we tell people you have to stay in jobs for years and years. Mm-hmm. There was no downside to leaving that one after a year at the end of the day. Um, and I have left another job after a year, but I do, uh, I didn't expect it. 20 something year old me thought it was just really wild to leave a job after mm-hmm. a year. Um, and, and, but I pulled the trigger and I did it. Um, and so I got to Washington. Um, I arrived the first day of November or the first week of November in 2011. And I went to cover uh, a Republican primary debate that weekend, wow. um, or that week, uh, in in uh, the, <coughs> near the hometown of Sarah. Greenville? I was at, are you too? I, I actually, both. I think I was at that debate. Yeah, it was at, um, it was at Furman College. Mm-hmm. Um, and Okay, maybe not that one. Yeah. I was at one that was at the Peace Center. Do you remember that one? Or were you there? I was, I was living in Peace Okay. Oh, you weren't. Okay, side note. Yeah, okay. I was at a debate in South Carolina. Anyway, keep wait, going. Wait, wait, wait. Because Amanda used to be a journalist, Well, for, too. like, two seconds, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I covered, like, yeah, I was a journalist for, like, two seconds around that time, and I, I went to one, de- no, I went to two debates, one in Greenville, one in Orlando, and and then my career in, in journalism ended shortly thereafter. I think but, Furman's in Spartanburg, isn't it? It's Furman is in Taylor's. Oh. Is that... It, that's Greenville, but like the one that I went to yeah. was downtown Greenville. It was at the Peace Center, and it was the one where like I went to that one too. Yeah. Uh, like it was only like the B-listers who participated. Yeah, I think it's Traveler's Rest. Yeah, you're right. Actually, okay. Anyways. We don't. Yeah, we're getting way <laughs> off topic. <laughs> so I went. I went to to cover this campaign. I went to forty states in a year. Um, I would leave sometimes for six weeks at a time. Um, just, I have a logistics question. Yeah. Do you keep an apartment in DC when you do that? I did. So, um, did you sublease it? Like, not, how does that work? In fact, in fact, I moved here and got an apartment understanding that I would spend very little time in it in the first year. So do year. you just like buy the, or rent like the shittiest apartment? I did. I lived in, um, in an apartment. I'm just, uh, I've always is, been curious yes, how people do that. well known in DC for really? the fact that it has a sunroom. 
Mm -hmm. um, for those DC uh, residents, the Meridian buildings. Oh yeah. Um, and people Do put a building? resident in the third bedroom because in the in the sunroom because you can bring your rent down. Mm -hmm. um, and so my roommate at the time and I shared a glass okay. wall um, that we had to cover over because wow. that was the the entrance into the sunroom. Um, but it was cheaper. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, but it, I I felt really strongly that I didn't. I could have put my stuff in storage. I had a friend who was living in her grandmother's recently departed grandmother's townhouse in Silver Spring, and she was like, "You could use this as your home base." But I really, I I was assigned to cover Newt Gingrich. I was assigned to cover the primary challengers that weren't Mitt Romney okay. um, in that cycle. And so, once the primary was over, it was not certain what I would be doing with the rest of the year. Um, and so, what I didn't want was the primary to end. My job to become uncertain and to be homeless at the same time. Yeah, that right? makes sense. I wanted, like, a place to come <laughs> home to when I finally came home. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, I got an apartment. Interesting. But well, you ended up covering Mitt Romney. I did end up covering Mitt Romney. Because <laughs> that's so, how, before we ever met, that's how I first knew your name. Mm -hmm. So year a year later, after the campaign was over, when I found out my boyfriend's or then boyfriend's friend was dating ginger gibson i was like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> that reporter from politica i was actually kind of nervous to meet you <laughs> don't ever be nervous to meet you. uh yeah no um there was like an internal politics struggle and the reporter who was covering mitt romney got moved over to cover the reelect. Mm -hmm. i got moved over to cover mitt romney after the primary was over um there's just some shuffling around there was some shuffling uh that it, that transpired um, and then I, I went back out on the road. Um, I mean, it was a lot of time on the road. Uh, in general, it got a little easier in terms of, like, stretches of being gone. There are other mm -hmm. reporters who can swap with you. Uh, at the end, all of the senior reporters want to be on the plane, so you mm -hmm. get sent back to headquarters, like, the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is a little less strenuous. Um, but surely I, I tell people all the time it's a once in a lifetime experience. You only want to do it once yeah. in your lifetime. But yet you've done it over and over again. <laughs> I've never done it like that. I've never done with the, the very, as, as intense. Um, so did you, is there one place in, that sticks out in your head is like the best place you visited on that during that campaign? How do you pick your favorite place I in know. America? I know. Um, it's like all of it. You know, I mean like the whole Or life, you could say worst place. Oh. I know. <laughs> Sorry, Oklahoma. Um, no, uh, but really, but no. You loved it um, all. I loved it okay. all. I, you, know, you get really, it's really like an, an abnormal life experience, right? Mm -hmm. You're like flying around on private jets. You're That's like walking nuts. out on the tarmac. You're in the motorcade for the second half of it. So like yeah. you never sit at a stoplight. Um, I remember the first time I sat at a, we got to the convention in Tampa and we took a car to drive into the convention headquarters and we got stuck in traffic and I was like, what is this? <laughs> what is happening? Um, you get very spoiled. Um, and you go to amazing places. I mean, look, like, Mitt Romney took us to the Park City, Utah in July, which was, was amazing, gorgeous and amazing. I have been back in July <clears throat> since then because I think it's beautiful. He also took us to Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, which mm -hmm. is, became, became one of my favorite places. It's absolutely beautiful in the winter and the summer. Um, I mean, those are just 
amazing places. But you know, I really like Ohio. Um, and I know that like lots of campaign reporters complain about Ohio. Um, but I like Ohio. I think Ohio is great. I will spend a night in Columbus. There's a great Italian restaurant I like to eat at. Like, I like That's Ohio. Yeah. Um, so as you're like traveling around with Romney or whoever, whatever candidate are you, you're covering, um, I can't talk, like, how well do you get to know them, and, and also maybe the spouse, like, when you were doing Romney, was Anne a big presence, like, how well do you get to know them, the family, the candidate, is that a real thing? It is a real thing, you know, I always tell people I would have dinner with Mitt Romney any day, I think he's just a really great person, I did enjoy getting to know him, and also interacted with us. Um, I, I, the nature of the campaigns, I got to know Newt Gingrich better. Mm-hmm. Um, he would come have a drink with us at the oh, bar wow. in the hotel at the end of a long day. Mitt Romney obviously doesn't drink, so mm-hmm. it's not really an option. Um, but I did learn that, like, he loves Clint Eastwood movies. And mm-hmm. he and I had, uh, we both picked the salt off of our pretzels and um, <laughs> the skin off of our chicken and <laughs> toppings off of our pizza because we're both... OCD weirdos. Um, <laughs> so, you know, things like that. Um, you know, in the 16 cycle, uh, I had one moment with Donald Trump that mm-hmm. I thought was a little bit of a peek into who he was. Can you tell um, us what I it can. Was? I can tell you. Um, so we were in Des Moines on the night of the Iowa caucuses, and we have what's called a pool. And the pool is when the candidate's doing something that it is not feasible to bring all of the reporters with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the wires and then normally just one designee from all of the other publications gets to go. The White House does this every mm-hmm. day. Uh, and the campaigns will adopt it at one point when the logistics get to be impractical. And so I was in the pool. I was the pool for uh, a caucus night was the Reuters representative. And um, he was sitting there. And so the way a caucus works is um, you vote. You have to show up in person. You have to vote in person. He's there. He gets to speak on his own behalf. So he gets to say to the room, like, I'm your guy. Vote for me. The pool is about, you know, six, seven feet away from him. He's sitting there. He's never been on a ballot before, Mm -hmm. right? And I look at him and I say, as we're waiting for it to start, I said, are you nervous? And the look on his face kind of kind of drops, the expression kind of falls off, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm nervous. And I was like, oh, what was that? Like, oh. like, he's just not a guy that sort of lets his guard down for a moment and admits any kind of vulnerabilities. Um, but I think the, like, reality of the fact that for the first time ever, he was going to have to um, stand before voters and have them assess him. I mean, really, running for office... Wow. Is, is is thinking that you can walk into any room and get half of the people in the room to like you, right, mm-hmm. um, when it comes down to it. And that's a real sort of actual experience mm-hmm. of it. Wow. That is cool. So, okay, so let's go back a little bit to 2012. You cover the campaign. You're on Romney. That election ends. What do you do next? He loses, and I come home the next day from Boston. Were you – okay, maybe this is a weird question, but, like, because you're object, you're an objective reporter. Right. Were you disappointed for him? Or were you like, eh, I don't know that's a feeling we – I mean, we do – Or is it more reporter, just like, I, this, is, this is over, it's like an end, the end of an era, like, poor Romney, like, what am I doing now? I, you know, um, I had conversations with him where he talked about – 
um, the ability to do normal life things Mm -hmm. um, and his inability and his want to do these normal Mm -hmm. life things that he couldn't do, especially once he was the nominee. Um, You know, in the run-up to the election, we knew he was going to lose. It was quite apparent. It was not apparent to him or his staff, right? If you watch that documentary of him, uh, I had a a source inside, inside the bubble text me the night before, and she said, are we going to lose? And I said, yes. You're going to lose. She goes, why am I the only one who realizes that? I said, because everybody else couldn't get up and do their job tomorrow if they admitted it. Um, So in the moment, like when you're there on election night, it's a different kind of experience, right? Um, But I think that a couple days later, there was this footage of him. He had gone to Costco, Mm -hmm. and he was, like, loading his, his, like, groceries into the trunk of his car. And that was the moment where I went, like, oh, like, he's getting to do those normal life things he wants to do again. But, like... Poor guy just, like, lost the biggest election of his life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's kind of a weird balance there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, we – reporters – we are not robots. We have emotions. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. we feel things. Um, and I think that you want people to be happy um, yeah. in general. Yeah. yeah. So I came home. I came home. Um, I met my husband two days later. Uh, he did nice. not know he would be my husband at that point. Uh, Surprise! Uh, never again. Never say no to a meeting. I took a business meeting, yeah. and uh, the person I took the meeting with brought him along. Um, that's how I met my husband. Uh, and then I went to cover Congress. Um, which still was, at Politico, right? Still at Politico, which yeah. is what I had always wanted to do. Um, I showed up, and the fiscal cliff happened. Um, oh so yeah, that was, that was a little wild. Um, yeah. Yes, I remember that. Sorry, I'm, it's all coming back. It feels like so long ago, but it really wasn't. Um, so, Congress. So that was kind of like what you thought you had always wanted to do, right? It was. It was okay. what I thought I always wanted to do. So, and, and it sounds like a lot of the early days of your journalism experience came through in Congress because you were, you know, following like following members around. You're sitting outside of their office. It's a lot of, like, gathering information from other people in the Capitol just to kind of figure out how to piece together your story. Yeah, it's it's casting a big net, right? Mm-hmm. You cast a big net. There are 535 members of Congress divided between the two chambers. Um, or when you combine the two chambers, it's not equally divided. There are, you know, each one of them has, has a multitude of staff. Um, there are lobbyists. There are advocates. I mean, there's a lot of people there, right? Um and so it's a lot of, of that sort of like, let me actually be on my feet running around chasing people. Now, look, don't get me wrong. You don't stop moving when you're covering a presidential campaign. Um, but the sort of you're dealing with a very tight control of information on a campaign that, that's quite the opposite in Congress. Um, so was it difficult to make that transition? I talk a little bit more about that, like from the campaign trail to Congress. And did you like Congress more than doing the campaign stuff or not as much? I like them both. It's hard okay. to choose. Like, choose a child, right? Um, <laughs> uh, they're both different and unique. I do think that at the end of every election, I say, I'm never doing that again. Really? And then I find myself doing that again. So there's that <laughs> problem. Um, I think that the transition, I mean, it was a lot of transition. <clears throat> I lived in a city for a year that I haven't actually lived in, right? Mm-hmm. So, like... Um, I didn't have any friends, <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, uh, I had come here and not, not made any friends in the course mm-hmm. of a year. Um, I went from being not single to single to then not single again. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things, I think. There's a lot of life changes. There was a lot going on and, and that 
time frame. I was in my late 20s. Um, I had finally made it to Washington where I wanted mm -hmm. to be. I didn't particularly like my job after a while, so then I didn't know if that was why mm -hmm. I was doing what I wanted to be doing. So there was a lot. I think Congress itself, too, has a beat. Just a lot to swallow, right? Like, yeah. There's and a lot the, going on. Yeah, and so also, and I know a lot of people don't know about, like, the, the Capitol Hill press corps, but it is, there's a lot of people there who have been doing that for a really long time. And um, when I was a reporter for two seconds, I covered the Hill for a summer and found it incredibly difficult. I think that's one of the reasons why I eventually got out, because I found it incredibly difficult to, like, jump in with that pack and try to, like, pave a way and, like, make a name for myself. And, like, nobody knew who I was. Like, people were coming up to me in the press room and, like, kicking me out of seats and being, like, that's my chair. Like, it was, it was, it was hard. And I only did it for a summer and I was, like, never again. I'm not doing this again. I'm not doing the hill. It takes a lot. Um, you're right. There's a lot of people doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I like to tell people, though, that journalism is like being a surgeon, mm -hmm. right? Um, you wouldn't necessarily pick your surgeon as the one who had been there the longest. Yeah. But you also might not pick your surgeon based on the one that had been there the shortest amount of time. Um, but there are skills and experience that come with age and there are skills and experience that come with being new. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not always the same. Yeah. Um, I think that it can be a very tough place. It's it also like there's a pack, right? And mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you never miss the speaker statement. Yeah. And you have to be in the pack to get that. But you also want to be able to carve your own thing and like have your own like sources and your own stories that you're chasing. It's just difficult when, when you're just starting out, I guess. And, like, no one – although, like, no one knew who I was. People probably knew who you were when you got there, I'm guessing. I, there's you, I mean, you had a reputation right? at that point, like, a very good one. I've been like, around. a solid reporter. I tell people that are doing what I'm doing, if you can avoid going to Washington first, avoid it. Yeah. Right? Like, um, there are skills you pick up. You're right. And, and, and look, at I also had the advantage that I was working for a, a large, well-known publication, right? Yeah. Like, at that point, I wasn't calling some member's office and being like, hi, I'm with Startup You've Never Heard Of. <laughs> like, would you please answer my phone calls, yeah. right? So that helps. I did later go cover Congress for a startup that no one had heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and that point transacted on my own name, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that people knew who I was. So who cares if they didn't know the startup? They yeah, were willing yeah. to, to deal with me. Because they knew you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's take a quick break. Um, and then we're going to dive into some more wonderful things about your journalism career. It's about your journalism career. It's about your journalism career. This episode is brought to you by Rumble Up. Did you know that 90% of text messages are read within the first three minutes? That's right. Stop counting open rates or dialing phone numbers that never connect. Instead, send a text. Rumble Up is the most advanced peer-to-peer -peer texting platform, driving real conversations between real people. That's right, real. So whether you're a candidate running for office, a small business, a corporation, or a nonprofit organization, Rumble Up can help you launch your own texting campaigns. Simply visit www.rumbleup.com to get started today. That's www.rumbleup.com and get started today. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are so thrilled to be here again with Reuters reporter um, Ginger Gibson. And we've been talking a lot about just 
your career in journalism so far, um, how you got your start, and what it was like being a campaign trail reporter. Um, and so you did the campaign trail for a while, then you went to Congress, and then at one point, um, I know we talked about this earlier, you left for a little bit to try out public affairs. That's right. <laughs> so you went over to the dark side for a little bit. What, or what people call the dark side, um, what went into that decision and what, did you like it? What was that like? Yeah, so I had gone to cover Congress in December of 2012, um, about two years later, um, in March of 2014, so I guess less than two years, a year and a half, um, I went, uh, I left journalism. Um, I was really unhappy in my job. I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was not the um, the doing of my job. It was the other things around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I struggled to know where the line was. Um, I, I couldn't, I kept asking myself, like, if I'm so unhappy, is it because I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing? And and if I really love doing this, shouldn't it make up for all of the other bullshit that is around here? Um, And and the answer is no, right? Now I look back at it and I'm like, the answer is no, you can love what you're doing and just have a pile of BS around you that makes all of it terrible. Um, I think that I've learned too years later that um, women particularly have a way of responding to negative work environments where we say, I'm going to fix it. And then when you decide you can't fix it, you're going to say, I'm going to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And it it affects how we should be managed. Um, And I hate to say women are writ large anything, Mm -hmm. but I have found women are more inclined to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Men will often, once they decide they can't fix it, they'll be like, well, I'm just going to hang out here and wait till the conditions change, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like women will be like, I'm like, oh, you, you're, this is terrible? Like, let's go find another place where, like, yeah. it's not going to well, be like, terrible. Well, we want to fix the situation. What Sometimes that means, like, putting in the work where you are. Sometimes it means I'm going to fix the situation by removing myself from it. And that will fix it. And I and I think that's how I approached it. I tried for a long time to fix the situation I was in. It was not fixable. At that point, I was like, exit stage left. Yeah. And I had been I think through. A lot of us can relate to. Yeah, and I think that the thing that was like compounding that is that journalism, for starters, like it's a cult, right? Yeah. Like there's this thought that like um, you're doing some kind of job that. If you leave, you can't come back, which I am a testament is not true. You can. Um, And that, like, you should be making some kind of grand self-sacrifice for the greater journalism good, right? No, it's a job. (laughs) Like, it just happens to be one that, like, contributes something to society. Um, And, and look, we as a society do this to a lot of people. We do it to teachers. We do it to um, some medical professionals. We do it to lots of people that were like, well, you should be getting all this personal fulfillment out of the thing you're doing. Like, no complaining. That's why you should do it for, like, no money, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I left. So I went to a public affairs firm. I was doing project management. I was doing business development. Is it for, like, mostly political or was it corporate? It was or- corporate. Okay. With, like, all of it's government-related, but it wasn't partisan politics. Um, And I was really on the business development side. I was writing contracts. I was writing proposals. I was um, project managing a software platform. Um, I loved it. I actually really liked the work. Um, I learned a lot about picking bosses 
right? Um, and work environments. Um, I learned a lot about project management that I didn't learn in journalism. It was like a great skill. Um, I had a team, so I learned about managing people, which was not something I was doing in journalism. Um, I, and, and, and the work was great. I probably could have kept doing that for a long, long time. Um, so I got approached by a startup that was looking for a Washington political reporter. It's going to be a one-woman shop. It was someone I had worked with before. Um, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to go back. Tell us what the startup was? Oh, I yeah. Remember it. it is the International Business Times, IBT. Okay, yeah, yeah, it yeah, still yeah, exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were uh, there's no they were sort of a click farm right they were aggregating a bunch um, and they had decided to embark upon real journalism and they were going to hire real journalists to write real journalism and they did and um, and and so I was one of a handful of what an attempt to hire experienced reporters most of it was like 20 somethings fresh out of college aggregating other places and then maybe doing a couple of original pieces um from there yeah so what made you then like go back from public affairs back to journalism were you just like i can't get this out of my head i love journalism like i just feel like this tug or was it just that that specific job was like i like too good to pass up i think i thought maybe i made a mistake and i shouldn't have left and it will always now look you can go back but it's not easy Right, the path back to journal path into journalism is really hard. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine somebody listening is like, I want to be a journalist, and like, look, it's not easy. Yeah. Um, and the path back is hard, and so I thought, oh, there's a path back. Let's see what happens. And I think I also at that point in in my career knew I had been gone six months. Um, I could go back with little sort of long-term Time, political like threshold wasn't there yet a yeah. long-term uh career risk and then i also knew that i could always go back and i still know i can always go back right um it is not an impossibility i think that uh young people particularly i think we look at our career trajectory as a straight line and we think that we have to follow this like straight line and we have to go step by step and if we deviate from the line it could have these long-term terrible ramifications um if we go back a step we'll never get to where we were and i just don't think that's true yeah that's so good to hear i felt that so many times in my own career and i've never been in journalism once <laughs> i mean I, I said early on journalism is cumulative right like yeah. you keep building you you hope that the best thing you do is the last thing that you did um and so we think that if we stop then that's it right we, we're done but it, from but journalism the act of journalism is not the same as a journalism career right. and like our careers are just like everyone else's yeah. for that that yeah. reason that's interesting I find yeah I just find the whole like career twists and turns like really interesting like what makes people do take certain jumps or or not or whatever so I, I find that fascinating but I do want to shift gears a little bit um, and just talk about what it's like um, to be a female reporter I think Christina's gonna kick this part off yeah what is it like is it I mean is it different do they treat you differently than they would treat men like if, if you're, you notice yeah absolutely Absolutely. A hundred percent. It is different to be a female journalist than it's to be a male journalist. Um, I should start this by saying there are women journalists who have come before me and paved the road in a way that if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be there. But the fundamentals of being a journalist is it's about relationships. It's about the relationships with my sources. Um, my 
especially political journalism, right? If, if if I'm covering the price of corn, right, there are some relationship issues that I need there. Um, but if I'm trying to get into the annals of government, for lack of a better way to put it, you need relationships, right? Um, and people have relationships and view relationships with women versus men differently. Sometimes my advantage and sometimes my disadvantage. Um, but it is different and it has been harder in some places. Um, it's harder internally and externally. Um, and I think that it is changing, rapidly changing, right? Um, but it, it remains something that women have to deal with. I mean, I was at a press conference a year ago here in Washington. Uh, it was the National Governors Association was in town, um, which tends to draw lots of political reporters because uh, Washington reporters that expect the governors to run for president want to go see them. And they had a press conference in the morning, the second day of the event. It was only Democratic governors. One who was probably running for president was running it. And I looked around and I realized it was the only woman in the room. It's the only woman that wasn't a staffer in the room. Not one other news outlet had sent a woman to cover that event. Um, and, you know, it's it. I, I don't think that my ability to cover that event that day was in any way changed. Um, but the reality that there are rooms in which you still walk into when you're the only woman is remarkable, right? Like we would think that we were past that, especially when you look at journalism schools, which are predominantly women, right? The journalism schools are graduating more women than men. Um, and yet our field is still dominated by white men um, is, is, a, is an issue. Now, do you see that more as a hiring problem with the newsrooms or with the edit, uh, editorials? Um, I, I think you know what you call it. Not of this world. Yes. Like, How, is that a hiring I look, and, and my my company realizes it's a problem, right? And so we have an effort. As a Hispanic woman, I have an interest in wanting more diverse women in the room. As a woman, I have an interest in wanting more women. Not just more women in the room, more women in charge, right? Like, I think that's mm-hmm. important. Last year, we had a new America's editor who's responsible for North and South America takeover who's a woman. Her name's Tiffany, and she's great, and it is great for us. Like, even just knowing that, like, there's a woman's voice in charge is important for all of us. Um, I'm not saying that every boss should be a woman. I'm saying that when we have more women in decision-making roles, it helps all women in the room. Um, and my company realizes that we need more diversity. We have a council that's together to try to do these things. So it is it is an effort. Um, but I, I would say um, it is a hiring problem. I would say when I talk to other women in other news outlets, it, it can be hard sometimes when there when you there's a job opening and they say, oh yeah, well my editor already knows he wants to hire this guy because he knows them because they worked together two papers ago, right. um, and so I, you know my news organization is pushing to um, require interviews with more people, right? Like the football role, the the head coach role, where you have to interview a minority, and um, uh, you know not that strict, but like. You got to get in people in the door, um, mm-hmm. and that'll start to help. I think the problem. Yeah. What about um, getting getting tips? Getting sources is really hard. There was, I mean, I covered Congress at a time when we had a speaker who was very broy, 
very broy, and and the bro speaker liked to talk to the other bro reporters. And I remember having days where I'd be sitting in press conferences and we were talking about men's socks. I have nothing to contribute to a conversation about men's socks, <laughs> um, but it made you feel like everyone else in the room was part of a like a discussion that you couldn't join. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women political reporters um, now look. There's, there, we follow sports more than the average group of women. Um, Some would say because sports and politics are the same thing and they trigger the same parts of our brains. And I've always been a sports fan um, long before I ever thought I'd be a journalist. But I also think it's a survival mechanism, right? We can talk about sports with the other men. And look, like I, when I was covering legislatures, when I was covering state governments, you know, walking into a hallway and seeing a bunch of men crowded around lawmakers, crowded around a piece of paper. And I was like, what are you guys, what's going on? Like, what's happening? And, oh, no, no, we can't tell you. I'm like, fine, someone just tell me. Is there something wrong with the bill? Oh, look, this word in there. It's like a penis joke. Oh, no, but like that kind oh of stuff, God. right? <laughs> and like, if, it does not surprise me. if I had been a male reporter that had walked up, they would have just told me, mm-hmm. right? But like, And it wasn't consequential to my work, right? But, like, I, as a woman reporter, was treated different. And, like... I just feel like, you know, not even just in journalism, but just in my own career as in all of us, I'm guessing. It's not like moments of outright sexism or, like, you're being punished, but it's, like, little subtle things that add up to make you feel like, at the end of the day, I was just treated differently. And, like just because I'm a woman and um, and who knows how like how else it's manifesting or how it's going to manifest itself tomorrow or like how they're going to treat me next week and like am I suffering professionally because I'm not in this club and I think that the thing that I struggle the most with is being treated like an authoritative voice mm-hmm. um, where there's an assumption that men know more mm-hmm. um, and so when I say something is the way that it is I more often have to find a source somewhere else to prove it, um, whereas men are taken more as an authority. Like, have you been straight up asked for sourcing? Uh, Right, yes, yes. Or can you, like, see it in their eyes where they're like... Or, you know, when you have to, they say, well, how do you know that? Well, I've been to Iowa for four caucuses, so I'm pretty sure I know the voting patterns of Ankeny. You have to establish your, like, authority in a way that, like, a male colleague would not have to. Which, by the way, like, how many of your male colleagues can say the same? Well, that's a wonderful point, right? Um, there's, There's just a presumption of authority that I think women don't always have that we need i mean look like the women who've gone before me of course are paving the road we're paving the road when we assert our authority that gets it better each time um but it's frustrating it's annoying it's like why do i have to prove this to you um was there ever a time when you felt like a, a subject that you were interviewing or a source that you were talking to um treated you differently because yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, look, don't get me wrong. Every once in a while, it works to our advantage. Like, yeah. every once in a while, I would call someone and I'm like, I don't understand this. Can you please explain it to me? Yeah. And they think, oh, yes, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. Let me explain it. <laughs> and then they over-explain and I find out more than they would have told me otherwise. So, yes, I think it does work to my advantage. Um, like, you know, my husband and I don't talk about work because it's the easiest way to handle this. But people knowing that my husband is a Republican operative probably plays to my advantage sometimes, right? Um, 
but yes, yes, I do think people assume you don't know. I also look young. Um, I was flying to Iowa last week with Senator Gillibrand, and she says, oh, is this your second caucus? And I said, no, try my fourth. <laughs> you know, like there's an assumption that like I'm, I'm younger than I am, so I think that probably also doesn't help. But yeah, sources all the time, they assume – I think a little more than they would for a man that, yeah. that we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. That's not surprising, but... No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, speaking of, speaking about, like, women being treated differently, are you seeing, especially with the shift of all the stories from this past cycle, the pink wave, all this new female legislators coming into the scene, um, uh, let's just talk about, like, the known people that are running for president for the presidential nomination on the democratic side, um, three sitting senators Mm. that are female. So how, how do you think that is going to change your game? The game also your reporting game for this upcoming cycle. Like, do you feel like you have a natural advantage this time? It's a good question. First off, let's never call it the pink wave again. Um, We got four women in the room, and I don't think anybody's wearing pink. Um, My husband owns more pink than I do. Um, That's also a very Republican operative thing to do. um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely owns more pink than I do. Um, uh, And why do we have to be pink? Like, I don't understand. I I don't understand. Um... I, you know, I, I we, a coworker, a female coworker, and I cover politics in my news organization. I'll, I'll name drop Amanda, uh, and I tried to like put a like no pink wave and copy. <laughs> we like put the fight up. <laughs> we didn't want to do it um, because look, like like pink has a connotation, um, and so uh, look, and I think that the presence of women in newsrooms means that we cover that different, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. We're like, don't call me pink, man, and I don't want to be pink, yeah. right? Like. Um, I think that it has the potential for the, the it start to play an advantage, right? I mean, you got to the problem is is that it's compounding, right? So if the if five of the ten reporters who have been the most influential political reporters in the nation are men, or you know, seven of them are men out of ten, it still is to their advantage. People want to talk to the most influential people, right? I mean, now. Now, look, like if Nancy Pelosi's office decided to only ever leak anything to women reporters again, they could reshape the way the congressional uh, press corps operates. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they should do that. I'm just saying if they, they did I that. Mean, hint, hint. <laughs> Hi, Drew. Um, uh, but I think that there is the ability there. I at least put us on even footing. Now, look. I wrote a story in 2012. All of the reporters covering the Newt Gingrich campaign, for the most part, were women. Um, We called us the girls on the bus. All of the network embeds were women. Um, We we were there were women everywhere. I think. Now look, here's the other thing you got to think about. There was the women want are doing this at the most embedding is the most competitive entry level political job. Period. Right. Um, You give up your whole life. You live on the road. You get a front seat to a presidential campaign. You come home and you know more about America and the inner workings of a presidential election than anyone else. Right. And it has catapulted a number of careers. I was on that plane with 
Jim Acosta and Peter Alexander and Garrett Hake and Casey Hunt and all of these people, right? Um, women's problems in part two are how they're handling the mid-career part, right? And, like, that's another problem. Um, but it can help us, right? It can help us if, if women candidates are talking to women reporters in the same way they talk to male reporters. Well, here's – so on that note, like, do you think that these female candidates are going to be fairly or unfairly judged a little bit harsh, harsher than, like, a male pre- presidential candidate in terms of just how they – talk to female reporters, who they work with, who they hire? Like, do you think there's also kind of a double-edged sword there? Like, if Gillibrand doesn't talk to or hire, like, you know, females or talk to females, is she going to be judged a little bit harsher for that because she is a woman? That's a good that question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, time will tell type- yeah, time will tell. I mean, um, should Democrats demanding diversity have more diverse campaign staffs? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good question, right? Um, I think one of the biggest things that gets looked at is how they pay, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you should be paying your staff equitably uh, if you're going to be talking about equal work, pay for equal work on the campaign trail. Um, I can't. Also, healthcare. Also. There are so many people, staffers that work for campaigns that don't get health care. That's absolutely right. The Democrats this last cycle had campaigns unionize mm-hmm. um, and their campaign signed union contracts with them, uh, which was sort of an interesting laboratory yeah. of like... I did not realize that. Yes, execute your ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a guild steward in my own shop, <laughs> like... <laughs> you know, unionize. Um, but yeah, you know, that was a point in that last election on the Democratic it's side. kind of like, you got to practice what you preach or else you're opening yourself up to questions. I mean... I, d- I did, however, see um, there were some, there is some early of this in this cycle, um, some calls for a $15 minimum wage for campaign staffers. Um, and I saw a, a Democratic operative posted on Facebook and said, well, in my day, we made our bones out getting low-paid jobs and i'm like yes but they're campaigning on this like how do you not execute um so it's you know it is an interesting uh question that's gonna unravel yeah so is that what you're planning to do um in 2020 are you heading back out on the trail i've already gone to iowa once so i guess i i that was the maiden voyage of my fourth iowa caucus can't stay away um I have to make new favorite restaurants because my favorite restaurant closed in Des Moines. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that right now I'm splitting my time between 2020 and Congress. Um, That's not busy or anything. Not busy at all. Not at all. all. Um, So there's a lot there. Um, The the perk that comes with age is the ability to step back and do some bigger pictures and not be responsible always for the churn of the everyday. Um, But, yeah, I love the churn of the everyday, though. Do you think 2020 – is the year that we might get a female president? I don't know. Um, I think that there are a number of women who are well-positioned to get the Democratic nomination for president. Um, there are also some men who are well-positioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't... I If I bet on politics, I wouldn't bet on anyone mm-hmm. at this point. Um that race is very wide, wide open. Yeah, it's still so early. It's still so early. And look, and don't count out Donald Trump getting reelected. Um, I'm, I, I think. Yeah, I don't think anyone can count that out. No, no. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of pieces that have to fall into place for a woman to be president in January of 2021. Oh yes. Yeah. 
Well, I, I am curious to see. I mean, now that there's going to be more than one woman standing up on a debate stage, for example, because I believe the first Democratic debates were like this June. June, yeah. Yeah, that's like coming so quickly. But um, it goes for all the coverage that women have gotten. Like we had Carly and then there was Hillary on the other side. Don't forget and Michelle. They- no, no, no. But I mean, like they were they were the lone woman standing yeah. on the debate stage. And now with with so many women entering on the Democratic side, I'm just curious to see how questioning changes. Yeah. Like uh, we, there, there's always the talk of how women are questioned differently and they're held to a different standard with so many there. Does that change? I think it does to some degree. I also think that, look, I, I post things on Twitter, my employer would probably rather me not. But part of it is like our industry needs to be calling out others in the industry who do engage in a sexist line of questioning. Um, Look, you can have a whole conversation about whether or not Elizabeth Warren is a bad candidate that isn't gendered. Um, And some people have succeeded at asking that question and some people have failed at asking that question. And um, the having more women in your newsroom um, is one thing that helps, right? Uh, there was a story in a large national publication this weekend questioning about Kamala's husband. Um, let me be the first to say my husband has little influence over what I say or do in my career. Um, and so, like, I don't know how I don't know how a story gets published that says that you know draws questions about a presidential candidate, a sitting United States senator's husband influence on their electability. Um, you know, it's funny here that the number one thing that stands out to me um, in how how people can check whether they're holding women to a different standard or not is I love to use the George Conway um, framework. Yeah. Every day he is going out there making Kellyanne's life so damn near impossible with the shit he's tweeting. Mm-hmm. And I find it really funny. But at the same time, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, if that was the other way around. And yeah. the wife of a, the special How assistant to the president. Treated? Like, I just feel like there would be a little bit more outrage. I actually don't know. Bit. I don't know that I... I think if a wife was tweeting in contrast to her husband's job, people would be like, oh, that's just his wife. That's just his wife. Yeah. And I think part of the reason we pay attention to George is that... There's this sort of unspoken question about whether or not he's influencing her or she's influencing him, right? And I think that that's absurd. Like, I think that they're a a walking testament to how your spouse doesn't influence you and your ability to do your job. You know, my husband doesn't influence me. Your husband doesn't influence you. I mean, we we go to work and we do our jobs. I'm not calling to check with him to ask Mm -hmm. about the things I write. Can I say this, honey? Can I tweet this out? No. (laughs) No. What do you think? Is this a story or not? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. My husband and his his, um, not... Uh, he does not uh, mince words and his opinions to me does broaden my perspective and it does allow me to hear points of view that I might not otherwise hear. Yes, that's a good thing. But it doesn't influence the way I do my job. I think the test is would you ask that of someone in a job interview? I mean, can you imagine interviewing someone for a job and asking them, how much did your husband influence the way you do your job every day? Yeah. You wouldn't. I'd be like, goodbye. Yeah, I wouldn't work there, right? Yeah. Maybe that says more about America. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's not that's not a valid question. Yeah. My gosh. Well, so I'm sure we are – 
Well, I'm sure that there are people listening to this that are aspiring journalists or maybe they're working their way up the ranks right now. What advice would you give them? Um, no, nothing is too crazy to check it out. Um, I think the tip they always tell you in journalism school, if your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? But, like, the best advice I have to be a journalist is nothing is too crazy to check out. Um, And on terms of being a journalist, right? I think that uh, it is is a world of which you will be surprised. And if you stop being surprised, you should stop doing this. Um, uh, Because there will be surprises inevitably. Um, and if they stop causing you to be surprised and you're not looking for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that if you want to be a journalist, you know, I wish we lived in a world where I could tell you, like, work hard and you will get ahead. Um, or even work really hard and you will get ahead. Um, but from a career advice standpoint, I would say sometimes you're going to work really hard and you're not going to get ahead. Um and that doesn't mean you didn't work hard. And that doesn't mean you're not good at what you do. Um, it's a it's a tough world. It's a tough industry. It's tough. Um, it's tough. Uh, and I think that that you have to sort of push through on those days um, more than some other industries might require. So I guess on a related note, what do you wish people that we're not in journalism understood about the media that they just don't. We are really normal people. Um, I think that's what I wish more than anything. I think whether they're people who encounter journalists in their work or they're people who watch them on television or read in the newspaper, they think that we're like some kind of bizarre zoo animal that should best remain caged because they might bite. Um, But we're not, you know, we live in your neighborhoods. Um, my colleagues have kids who send your kid, who go to school with your kids. Um, we are regular people who wake up in the morning and cook breakfast. And sometimes we have to worry about how we're going to pay our bills. And some days we have to worry about how um, we're going to get to the end of the day and who's going to do daycare pickup and who's going uh, to make dinner. And some days we do really normal things. Now, some days we get on television and we explain the presidency, right? Um but more so, we're just really average working professionals who do really average yeah, working professional things. Yeah. I mean, this everyone's trying to, I mean, look so like. You, wait, you mean you're not in some, like, conspiracy to, like, defraud the American people or anything like no, that? No, not in some conspiracy. Okay, look, I don't have the time for that. I mean, I wish I had the time for that, right? Like, I wish I had, like, the spare amount of time to go to secret basement meetings where we conspire to, so, like, to, to like, public, take down like, yeah. presidencies or kings or whatever we were taking down that day, but I don't have that much time mm-hmm. um, because I haven't done laundry this week, and when I leave here, I'm going to go do my laundry, um, and I really want to, what's the the condo woman, was you get rid of stuff? I really, I really want to embrace it, but like, that just looks exhausting to me. Like, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, on that note, does anyone have any other questions? Nope. I have a lot, but I know. We'll have to bring you back for part two. Okay. Part two. Pontificating. All right. Well, that was part one with Reuters um, national correspondent. Political, whatever. Amazing really reporter. important reporter. <laughs> Ginger Gibson, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I think this was a great conversation, and maybe someday we'll have you back. Yes. Yeah.
Awesome. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Download, subscribe, get all your friends to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks. Have a good one.